2-1, live or hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World with me, Kane Sims, and today I am joined by Kevin Frederick, One Reach Managing Partner. Uh, Kevin, welcome, welcome to VUX World. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been following uh, following One Reach quite a lot recently, and uh, things are going really well. You know, it seems like it's a, a very interesting and, and unique platform and unique approach. I think is probably more accurate, uh, which I'm dying to get into, which we'll do in a moment. So for those of you who, you know, you may have seen things like the Gartner Magic Quadrant uh, for uh, conversational AI platforms, you'll have seen one reach in there as a leader in there. And we have a lot of conversational AI platforms on the podcast because we always like to figure out, you know, what the differences are between them and what's unique and the different perspectives that the founders and senior people at those organizations bring about the industry and about the technology and about how it's been implemented. And OneReach has definitely got a completely different philosophy, which I'll have to say kind of aligns more with what my philosophy on this stuff is as well in terms of it being really a, a, a game change in technology for the way that businesses operate. Um, and so definitely looking forward to getting into that conversation. Which we will do in one moment. Uh, but first, first before we do that, uh, I need to give a shout out again to Core AI, who is the presenting sponsor of Voice uh, 22 or VUX at Voice 22, I should say, I should clarify. Uh, so VUX World is going to be at Voice 22, the Voice Summit in Arlington, Virginia, uh, on October the 11th. We're running a, a conference at the conference for the entire day where we're going to be sharing with you the ins and outs of contact center automation using conversational AI and natural language processing. We've got a whole bunch of uh, industry thought leaders, a whole bunch of companies actually there as well, sharing their story about how they did it. A whole bunch of learnings for you. So if you are interested and in trying to automate your contact center using conversational AI, get yourself to Arlington in October. It's going to be absolutely immense. You can save 20% on your tickets by using the code VUX20. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing you there. There's going to be some giveaways as well, actually. I've been getting some more caps done. So somebody might be in with a shout of winning some some exclusive VUX World merch. There you go. Uh, cool. Now then, let's get on with the matter at hand, uh, which is One Reach and the One Reach approach, which I'm definitely looking forward to. Well, Kevin, maybe you can give us a little bit of a, a background in terms of your background and where One Reach came from. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, it's it's been a really personal journey for me. I've I've been involved with an incredible team of folks over at OneReach for about ten years now. Um, our principal designer and chief technologist and and principal founder Rob Wilson um, uh, was as soon as I met him, I, I knew he had a magic that I would be able to uh, attempt at least to absorb. And I've always wanted to be on a, on a team where everyone's smarter than me and, and one reach definitely checks the box. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey, a challenging one, uh, but in some really, really rewarding ways. Um, the origin story I think is, is, uh, you know, worth chatting a little bit about, um, prior to starting one reach, our team, um, had a, a different company called Effective UI that Forrester Research had named the first user experience agency in the world. Um, so we were competing with Frog Design and IDEO, helping large enterprise design and build primarily graphical user interfaces. So think mobile apps and, and desktop experiences um, for some of the biggest you know, brands in the world. And what we found was regardless of how compelling those traditional interfaces were, people were still looking for a contact us page and uh, really a phone number to call. And when, when they would call, the experience, the user experience of that phone call left a lot to be desired. Um, and, and that was kind of offensive to the, to the UX thinkers on our team. And it felt like this really big challenge. You know, how can we acknowledge that conversation as an interface um, has always mattered and is mattering more and more every day. And yet at the same time, it, it's felt like um, for a long time there, it was left out of this whole digital transformation conversation. And so we ended up selling Effective UI to uh, WPP back in 2012 uh, to start OneReach with the idea being, let's let's make it so that anyone in the world can build some experiences they're really proud of where a conversation is the primary uh, primary interface. Um, so it's been a, a journey we've been on for a long time, learned a lot along the way, but still still enjoying every minute of it. 
Interesting. It's an interesting observation that around conversational kind of channels. I mean, it's it's kind of known or spoke about now that conversational channels are an interface, conversational UI, whereas a while back it wasn't really seen as such. It wasn't seen as an interface to an organization or an interface to technology or whatever. It was kind of just that's where you go to have a conversation with a human. You don't think about it as a customer experience necessarily, although it obviously definitely is. <clears throat> um, and to do that 10 years ago, what's that, 2012? That's like Siri had just launched um, and Alexa was not existent. I think um, Amazon, I think, had already acquired, was it Yak, I think it was, or something like that. So they were probably working on something. But at the time, there was very little out there that even kind of covered any of this stuff. So where where do you start when you're going, when you're going to try and all, or at least improve a conversational interface when all yeah. that exists is probably like nuance or something like that. Yeah. I mean, if you go back far enough, you know, Rob was tinkering on like the first versions of messenger platforms that I frankly hadn't even heard of, you know, it's something he had just always thought was, was kind of interesting. But when we decided to really take a run at it, we, we went to the first principles and said, why, why are phone systems so complex? You know, why is telephony this black box that appears magical to so many people? Um, and after doing enough digging, we kind of found that, you know, back then and in many ways, even today, there are these monolithic, you know, systems uh, by the mega vendors, you know, the Cisco's and Avias of the world that have a very esoteric um, kind of group of, of folks who know how those things work. And, and if you don't, you're kind of excluded from being able to, um, to, to be involved in the design of what these systems were doing. And so that, that idea that you had to be such a specialist um, to us was one of the big problems to solve. Um, with, with most things that are complex, you can, you can solve complexity through diversity. And so we wanted to extend and, and make more available these complex things so that a non-developer or a non-telephony engineer can actually sit in the cockpit and play an active role in deciding what should happen when someone calls a business um, or, or what should happen when someone tries to send a text message to a toll-free number. Um, mm -hmm. And instead of going through, you know, the kind of the telephony teams, we thought, why shouldn't this go through uh, a more diverse group of folks, each who want to play an active role in it? And so that the first thing we built was was frankly designed for micro businesses. You know, think salons and pet shops and restaurants. And we said, why shouldn't they be able to, you know, have a an, a, a reservation bot? You know, thanks for calling mm -hmm. Kevin's Cafe. You know, how can I help you? Do you want to come in today? Great, let's make an appointment. And we saw that that level of democratization was so successful that we quickly got pulled into the enterprise space because that same. Um, speed of innovation was something that the largest companies in the world were trying to unlock. Um, and so as soon as word got out that a restaurateur, you know, could build, you know, something helpful to their business, you know, larger organizations said, well, there's got to be something going on there. Let's study this. And, and here we are. Mm. And when was that then? What, what what kind of time frame was that? When that, those those early kind of releases for the smaller companies? Yeah, yeah, that that was that was you know 2012 or so, 2013, kind of into that wow. range. Um, wow. And and we we were you know in that SMB market for about six months <laughs> before we got <laughs> before we got pulled into the upper mid market and enterprise, and and that's where we've been you know spending our time um, you know ever since. But the the core principle you know of let's make it so that smart people regardless of technical ability can you know be a part of this future of how people and machines interact you know that's that's something that we've been chasing for a long time mm, interesting so what it what was it that you were actually offering at that point then was was it kind of as i said like you know lex came out of amazon alexa which wasn't around at that point google hadn't acquired api AI or API.com, whatever it was called, um, which turned into a dialogue flow. Watson maybe had something in 2012, I think, that might have, might have existed, but very little actually existed. So what was it that you actually had? Was it proprietary kind of NLU sort of capabilities? Was it more sort of out of the, like, click button sort of chat interfaces? Was it phone call? Like, what, what actually was it? 
Yeah, so we, we started with a, a drag-and-drop interface um, that allowed for people to build voice and messaging experiences that could be either menu-driven or dialogue-driven. And so we were – and, and the output at the time, um, it, it was all kind of VXML-based. Um, mm. And so, you know, using grammars and, and things like that, the, the traditional kind of voice capabilities – and then as, you know, to your point, you know, that, that's that's about the time that a lot of this, you know, speech recognition and voice biometrics and all these cognitive services really started to um, accelerate. We, we had an interesting decision to make. You know, do, do we want to get into the business of trying to build the best, you know, voice biometric solution or the best speech recognition capability or the best text-to-speech solution? Um, knowing that we'd be competing with some of the biggest firms in the world, um, or is it more likely that there will will never be a single best vendor for those things? And and that's something that we've we've really um, committed to uh, as, as a decision. Meaning meaning there's so much innovation in the ecosystem that for any vendor to say our NLU is the best or our speech recognition is the best. Number one, it's not true because there are limitations around, well, for what language and under what mm. circumstances on, and on what channel and for what domain. Um, and, then, and then also, even if you were the best at one of those little slivers today, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Um, mm. And so we, we wanted to, to think about it a little differently and, and empathize with our customers a bit more. who were really focused on trying to transform their enterprise. And instead of trying to place a big bet and say, I, I believe that XYZ mega vendors, you know, the horse I'm going to, I'm going to bet on. We said, let's, let's acknowledge the truth um, that there's going to be a ton of innovation here and it's going to be happening faster than people can keep up with. And that the organizations that will be most competitive are those that have a composable architecture so that you can easily adopt these innovations that are going to be happening at, you know, at lightning pace. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of brings us to where we are now, where, you know, we found a lot of value in being this orchestration engine um, that allows for the adoption of innovation throughout the entire ecosystem, um, both internal. I mean, we have, we have customers building their own machine learning models and running those on one reach. Um, we've got organizations using third-party speech tracking, text-to-speech engines. We have some using the products that OneReach has built natively um, in those domains. But I think at the end of the day, it's nice to have the flexibility um, to really future-proof how you're thinking about, you know, what these tools look like going forward. Mm. It's interesting. When I first come across the the language of orchestration, um, I was exposed to it from another company who were discussing it from the point of view of, and this is a while, a long while back, but it was discussing it from the point of view of orchestrating other chatbots and voice assistants, and essentially a bunch of different conversational AIs, um, and providing like a front door to that. So if you imagine at the moment, I'm sure you've got clients which are in the same situation, which is that they've got one vendor for the chatbot, another vendor for their call center capabilities, maybe a couple of use cases in the call center that is quite specific, might be outsourced to a a kind of like point solution, like outbound use cases or whatever. Sometimes uh, you might have, I don't know, a, a platform that marketing are using for WhatsApp messaging. And so there's all these bunch of different kind of technologies kicking around. And so you know the orchestration part for me was all about how do you have a front end to all of that different stuff to make sense of it and then pass off different requests that come from various channels to the right bot to handle very much in the same way as alexa's architecture amazon alexa's architecture is is built which is that when you say something amazon grabs that turns it into um you know, text essentially turns your audio speech to text, and then it will pull the various domain specialized bots underneath it and say, "Who's got the best match for this?" But that's not really what you're talking about when you're talking about orchestrating experiences and orchestrating the transformation of the organization, is it? So I'm wondering whether you can shine a light on what you mean when you talk about being the orchestration layer. 
Yeah, yeah, happy to. It's it's inclusive of what you said. Um, so kind of what you described of multiple bots. M- m- most conversational AI AI platforms are skill builders, so they build skills. But there's there's no kind of overlay um, that that connects those in helpful ways to other pieces of the business, and more importantly, um, provides for a user centered design paradigm. And so as we as we kind of studied and and in the early days had had to make some hypotheses around what what was going to be most helpful to our customers we realized that it it's really this this idea that you're creating digital workers um, which are collections of skills but fundamentally digital workers do two things they converse on any language that you want on any channel that you want but they also do work and and it's the doing work part that is often undervalued and so some of what you described kane we we call the five-year mistake um you know random acts of bot building random acts of innovation where i want a chat bot here and a different thing for whatsapp and uh, none of this is connected to my contact center that you know that's a very common thing that's happening right now um and and managing that vendor portfolio becomes difficult and in the age of ai where data is everything now you've got your data you know, locked up in these, in these different, different areas. And so our approach is slightly different, um, where it all starts with really being responsible for the, for the pipes and the infrastructure. Um, so for example, our platform is voice native. We have our own session border controllers. We support SIP and PSDN. That means any phone call, whether it's part of a Genesis deployment, a Cisco deployment, maybe it's it's none of those and just working with OneReach, all of the telephony can now be analyzed. Um, and when you own the pipes, when you manage the pipes, now you can do interesting things with the data that's flowing through those pipes. It's the same thing with channel connectivity into SMS or Teams or Slack or WhatsApp or Alexa. So once if you if you have control over all of those pipes, now you can start to analyze what's happening. And what we believe is there's more information being shared in conversations that is unstructured than there is information that's being captured in structured ways and things like CRMs. Mm-hmm. So so for example, let's say that um, you know I'm I'm at home and uh, my internet goes out and I need to have a uh, they, the ISP needs to send a truck. It's very important to both parties that that appointment isn't missed. They don't want to show up when I'm not here, and and I want I don't want them to have to reschedule. So maybe as I make that appointment over the phone, I say, you know, let's try for for Tuesday, and my virtual assistant books that on Tuesday. Maybe Monday night. I send a text and I say, can we try for Wednesday afternoon? My daughter has soccer practice tomorrow. That second um, uh, message was on a different channel. And I, and I didn't indicate that I'm referring to, to the appointment. But I've also revealed I'm a parent <laughs> and Tuesday afternoons aren't good for me because my daughter has soccer practice. That internet service provider would benefit from knowing these things about me. That might help inform a marketing program. So the next time I go to their site, there's a promotion about, you know, kid-friendly, you know, TV packages. Or three months from now, when they want to do a, a package upgrade and come back to my house, they know not to recommend Tuesday afternoons because my my daughter has soccer practice. So it kind of goes back to the HP quote, you know, if only HP knew what HP knows. Um, mm. And so if you own the pipes, now you have visibility into all that data. How can we, how can we leverage that um, to drive better customer experiences and, and operational outcomes? So when we think about orchestration, right, it's the orchestration of the channels. It's the orchestration of the backend fulfillment systems for things like appointments. Um, it's orchestration of sessions that span time, right? So that the call happened one day, the text happened another. Recognizing there's a relationship between these things matters. And then you bring in the orchestration to, to what you alluded of, which which natural language understanding system is going to be most well-tuned for someone who speaks like Kevin, 
in English. And, and how might that be different for someone who has a UK accent, right? Or, or lives in Canada, right? Maybe there are differences to which cognitive system is going to be most performant on a case-by-case basis. So if, in order to optimize based on this bigger picture that I'm, I'm trying to describe, you realize that one of the big mistakes that people make is being skill-focused. So a lot of the conversational platforms out there that are skill builders now, hopefully, you can see how that's a far more narrow kind of task that they're trying to pursue, um, and it's and that's a slower path, or maybe maybe not even a, a possible path to get to true enterprise transformation, which is kind of where where we spend most of our time. Mm, which which gets us right to what I'd kind of titled this this short episode as, which is why conversational AI has always been about transformation or business transformation or digital transformation, whatever you want to call it. So I mentioned before we kind of kicked off that, you know, my background is in digital transformation um, and then moved into conversational AI, NLP, that kind of stuff, um, knowing that there was a connection between the two and that when you work in digital transformation and service design and those kind of things, you very quickly learn that what happens on the front end doesn't really matter unless it's properly plumbed into the back end. If you can't do anything for the user, then it's it's pretty much pointless, really. It's only going to go so far, isn't it? <clears throat> the FAQ chatbots and stuff like that are, are, are decent, but those questions are often asked as part of a journey. And if you can't fulfill the journey, you're not really doing anything but putting a Band-Aid on stuff for the business. But most of what we experience in the conversational AI kind of space, you know, if you go back to 2014, 2015, when it was the smart speakers and assistants that were really prevalent, they were really just command and control systems, turn on the light, turn on the heat in place, some music set a timer, not really conversational, don't really get much done for businesses. Uh, And the fulfillment was all coming from third party APIs. And then you've got chatbots that are becoming more prevalent now than they were in 2016 arguably which and most of them start with those faq use cases that i mentioned and the most now are starting to get into the realms of beginning to do more transactional things so they're beginning to move from faqs into being able to actually service people so book that appointment that you're referring to there cancel that appointment you know process a return order uh you know that kind of i haven't seen many examples where there's actual transactions happening apart from in like debt collection and stuff but regardless it's kind of moving to a place where finally the front end is being connected to the back end but it's only being connected to the back end based on what's currently already available so businesses that have APIs that allow and enable this kind of uh, these transactions to happen, there's a bunch of other stuff missing that prevent that future kind of transformative model, which is things that you mentioned there around context management. So if someone texts you, you had a phone call on a, on a on a phone, they then text you and say, "Can we move that appointment?" having some brain that's able to understand that this user was just talking to us here about this and this is the stage that they're at and when they say this they're referring to that appointment so now let's do something um but then also you know i think this is maybe what some of like maybe vonage and and, and others are are trying to get to and, and ujet and stuff which is providing that ability to be able to um connect different channels and and fulfill in different spaces so going from phone to text or sending text reminders when an appointment's due which isn't necessarily a conversational use case but it was related to the use case that you might have fulfilled in a, in a conversational channel like booking the appointment <clears throat> so a long-winded way of getting around to to the the i suppose fact what i would say is a fact is that all of the use cases that we see now are beginning to move more towards transactional business transformative or business automated stages. However, it's all based on what's already currently there. APIs into backend systems and the current um, uh, provision of those skill building platforms that you mentioned. Whereas the one reach approach, it'd be nice to get a little bit more into some of these use cases that have been enabled, which is that <clears throat> yes, it's the conversation. Yes, it's integrations into backend systems and stuff like that, but there's also much more that you can do in order to stitch together a customer journey, either over time or over different use cases and things like that. I wonder whether you can shine a little bit of light on some of those capabilities that are maybe lacking in other deployments that you've seen. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're highlighting 
you know, what the easy stuff is versus what the hard stuff is. And, and there's been a lot of focus in the market on the easy stuff, trying to make it look like it's hard. <laughs> so like NLU, for example, is this mystical, sexy, fun thing that everyone likes to talk about. You see a lot of vendors kind of using that as bait um, mm. to, to reduce the scope of, you know, let's just talk about this one thing. Um, but the truth is in order to deliver value, natural language understanding is probably 10% of what you actually need. So the, so the right thing to do is actually to open your aperture and say, what systems do we have? What are their limitations? What is the ideal customer experience we're looking for? And who can we partner with to kind of fill in, fill in those gaps? And, and the, the, the paradigm right now is, well, I could pick one of these skill-based conversational AI platforms Okay, there's 10% of my solution. Now I got to figure out some integration framework. I need uh, some third-party voice gateway. Um, you know, forget about using graph databases to deal with unstructured data. We'll get to that 10 years from now. And, and by the time you're done, you've got this portfolio that you need to manage, hoping that everyone's you know playing nicely in it. Um, whereas the hard stuff um, is, is, if you get the hard stuff right, then delivering value becomes more feasible, and I and I, I, th I think that word feasibility really matters. You know, everyone can say, "Well, it's software; you can build whatever you want." And you're like, "Yeah, with enough time and money, you could." No doubt. Um, do you have unlimited time? Do you have enough developers? Are those developers skilled in conversational design? Like, of course not. So, so if you if if you kind of agree with this premise that it's best to not get distracted by the easy stuff. Know that skill building is a commodity. Know that NLU is a commodity. SpeechRec is a commodity. Now you can focus on the hard stuff, um, like multimodality, um, managing session data um, across channels and time, um, and then using machine learning capabilities to optimize the experience at runtime. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, there's a, a waste and recycling um, service provider um, and they have a disposable dumpster product. So if you were doing a kitchen remodel, you could buy one of these um, at a hardware store, unfurl it on your driveway and, you know, dump all of your cabinetry into it. So they have a lot of people calling in to ask, hey, I need to schedule a pickup for this disposable dumpster. Um, and I think a lot of vendors would go to that and say, oh, we, here's how we would build a language model to understand how people are going to ask for this. And here's how we do, you know, identif um, identity management. And now whenever anybody asks about picking these things up, we can offer a self-service experience. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, what happens when someone calls in and says, can I put flooring into this? Like, is that an improved? Well, that answer might be really complex. It depends on how much or what type. Um, and so reading that back to them on a phone is going to be a pretty painful user experience. But if you could transition and share the phone call live with a digital experience on your phone. So you're on speakerphone and you're looking at it. Now we've, we've made answering that more easy, but this is where it gets really interesting, Kane. What if the digital worker could acknowledge that if the person is asking what products they can put in the dumpster and also they're scheduled to have this thing picked up tomorrow, that, that there's a relationship between those two things to say, you're probably not ready for us to pick this up if you're still asking what you can put in it. So what if what if that digital worker got to play offense and say, hey, Kane, and, and by the way, now that we've answered your question, perhaps we should reschedule you know, the pickup that, that we have on the books for tomorrow. And you might say, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Let's do it. And, and so now you're getting a better experience and, and serviced on something you didn't even know to ask for. And the enterprise is going to see an incredible ROI on that because they're going to reduce last-minute cancellations and rolling trucks for pickups that that are failed. Mm -hmm. So if you have an NLU kind of lens, you know that that's your hammer, and everything looks like a nail. You're never going to get to the point that I just described, which is more of a a, a true you know automated customer experience where the brand is leading the end user mm -hmm. to a successful outcome without the the end user knowing what question to ask for next mm. that's that's getting towards i don't know if you've seen raz's conversational ai scale which goes from one to five and it's kind of talking about like you know 
level one and two is basically the customer, the user needs to know exactly what they want and then the bot can give it to them, uh, which is what you've explained if you wanted to ring up and order order a pickup of that bag, hippo bags they call them in the UK. Uh, and so and so that's like a level two. Level three is using a little bit more sophisticated natural language, really. So it's more conversational, um, but the customer still really needs to kind of know what they want. Um, maybe there's a bit of nudging here and there from the bot. But level four is where... Uh, the assistant doesn't re- the sorry the person doesn't really understand what it is that they need and the digital assistant's job is to help them figure that out mm-hmm. and so in that example you just give i would say that's probably an example of a level four assistant where the users called up to ask a simple question and at the time don't really think that they're not going to be ready for the pickup they don't know that they need to rebook the pickup but the AI is doing the work to raise that need for them. Um, so that's definitely an example of being able to provide or being able to being able to create definitely more sophisticated uh, experiences that are commonplace today. I would maybe argue that you can do this today with lots of other technology. It's more it's it's the design of that experience that's the the issue and, and, and people not thinking about how can this journey be made, you know, really smart? How can we be more user centric about this? So is there anything about one reach, either in your approach or in terms of the platform that makes this kind of stuff easier? Because it's obviously it's doable with other technology, but you would have a bit of a mission to try and stitch together the relationships between these different scenarios. You would have to do a whole bunch of different scenario map, and it would get very complex, very hard to manage. How do you approach making that stuff easier to do? Yeah, yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, it, it's about how feasible this stuff is, right? How easy is it? How feasible is it that we can we can actually do this? Um, that example that I I shared with you. Um, one one of our partners brought that to us on a Thursday afternoon and said, "Hey, we have a demo with this client on Monday. You know what? How should we approach this?" And in 90 minutes, uh, a woman on our team named Annie um, built that prototype. Um, and it wow. and and Annie's background is relevant because working at OneReach is her first job out of out of university where she was a biology student. So let's let's kind of and and I mean built everything the the phone connectivity the language models the business process the scheduling components um, and and it used three channels uh, voice SMS and a secure uh, mobile experience and so let's bring that back to kind of where we started which was ten years ago you know you'd have to involve your Cisco telephony team to say how does how does that work? Now, you know, a recent college grad can say, "Oh, this will be fun. Give me, give me a, a, an hour or two, and I'll and I'll bang something out." Um, so I think that does two things. It speaks to Annie, obviously being you know a really, you know, really smart person, but also this concept that if if you enable people who are closest to the problem to participate in the solution, you will innovate more quickly. If if that same thing had to go through a dev cycle and scoping with telephony and 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 just the bureaucracy of getting all of that you know organized would have taken a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the secret sauce is is acknowledging that if the if the easy stuff like speech recognition and NLU is just removed from being a priority. Um, now you can focus on the experience design, which is how you deliver the business outcome. We call that getting on the racetrack. So now that we're there, we can go a step further and say, okay, well, Kane and Kevin might have the same, um, we might be in the same situation, right? We both ask, can I put flooring into this thing? Maybe based on the fact that it's your first time calling in and it's my third time using this product maybe the design should have an awareness of that 
um, or maybe based on different attributes of the user, when we message, maybe for me, I'm more responsive if you're very kind of clinical and formal. For you, Kane, like more emojis, the better. That type of data-driven design um, can have a really interesting and positive effect on outcomes. Um, so something as simple as a notification, you know, if, if we wanted to let you know, Kane, that you know, we're, we're on time to schedule your pickup, you might prefer to hear that over the phone. I might prefer SMS. You might prefer WhatsApp. I might be statistically more likely um, to confirm my appointment if you message me before 9 a.m. You're more available in the afternoon. Um, if you send me an email and I don't open it within 12 hours, you should probably follow up via text. You might have a very different pattern. So all of these things that are usually considered a one-size-fits-all design decision can now be contemplated and hypothesized on a case-by-case -case or cohort-by-cohort basis. And, and it's through that fulfillment of this promise of hyper-personalization that we can actually deliver, you know, improved business outcomes. One of our customers has said um, they, they, they designed what they call a golden call. And it's where, and I'll, I'll just make this up, but let's say it's a collection of three criteria. The person was able to fully self-serve. It takes less than three minutes and they don't call back for five days. Let's just imagine mm -hmm. that's the cocktail, right? A 1% increase in that golden call ratio results in a million dollars a month improvement to the bottom line. Wow. So, so then everybody <laughs> is like, how do we get another 1% this week? Right. Um, and, and you'd be, so, so now we can think differently, right? It's, it's not like, Oh, please pay attention. Our menu options have changed. Like those days are <laughs> long gone. It's, Oh, hold on. Kane's. So what do we know? Oh, it's Kane's first time. We know that for first time callers, if we mention this, that that happens. So let's design that in. And uh, so it gets really fun when you, when you feel empowered to get into the level of detail that I'm starting to describe. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's interesting now. Well, there's two things that come to mind there. One is that, um, gathering preferences is uh, sometimes a bit clunky in a conversational interface because you kind of need to say, would you prefer us to email you or would you prefer us to text us? Would you prefer us for us to follow up with it? You know, it, it can be quite it can be quite onerous on the user to go through a bunch of menus to put their preferences in sort of thing. So I'd be curious about how you go about ascertaining the right contact options for um, for u different users. The other thing is is the customizing or personalizing the responses based on the person. That's getting into some of the things that we have spoke about in the past. And I think that originally came from Brian Romley the first time I heard something like this, which was that <clears throat> he was staying around, you know, someone who has a certain type of Myers-Briggs profile uh, versus somebody else with a different type of profile. So for those that don't know, Myers-Briggs profile, it's like your behavioral character traits, personality traits. Some people prefer to be spoken to in direct kind of short, sharp tones. Other people prefer the full background and to be more elaborate. Um, and so he was given the, the example of how... Um, the let's say you're driving and there's some traffic and you need to get diverted you've got your sat nav on you need to get diverted some people just want to be told to start the diversion other people want to know what's going on with the traffic and why it's being diverted and why we're choosing this route rather than another route and so you're getting into really hyper personalization not just in terms of the, the channel options but also in terms of the interaction itself so I'd be curious also about how you approach learning that which both of those things how you learn people's contact preferences how you learn people's interaction modality preferences so to speak all ties into i'm assuming some analytical capabilities so i'm wondering whether maybe we'll just simplify it and turn it into two things how do you go about ascertaining people's personal preferences and can you speak to any of the kind of analysis capabilities that are available to to do this stuff and others yeah so um even the word preferences is, is, is I think, worth studying because you're right. I think as people listen to this, they think of like a checkbox, you know, do you want this, this, that. Um, the, the truth is our data suggests that what you think is your preference might not be based on the urgency of the topic. You know, I might say, don't ever text me, but if, if my delivery is going to be 
you know, three hours early and I need to be there for it. Like you better text me. <laughs> um, and, and so it's, it's kind of this acknowledgement that maybe even the end user doesn't know, you know, what they actually prefer and when. And so being able to study outcomes is the only way to, to make progress on optimizations. So let me, I'm using the word outcomes very intentionally. If, if you are using an NLU-based system, um, they will be very proud of their confidence scores. We know that these words meant that intent. If you don't know what ended up happening, did we end up rescheduling an appointment? Then it's hard to know exactly how accurate the NLU was and and what channel we decided to use, was that the right one or not? And so um, the only way to solve this is not by having opinions on what people want. It's by using an event-based system that allows you to track what people respond to and when and being able to organize those into cohorts of people based on different attributes, could be demographics, could be tenure with the company, could be frequency with which they're being communicated. There's a lot of different ways to kind of group group people together. But then to your point about analytics, now you can visualize that in charts and graphs and start to you know, use, use your human brain <laughs> to identify um, uh, trends. But as, as you are gathering data from from this event-based system, now you can design the conversation using rewards-based algorithms. So it might say, hey, I'll give you a really simple example, an A-B test. If we send an emoji, does that affect the appointment booking rate? Well, you could design that and say, for every successful booking, increment plus one. And if the version that uses emojis gets to an 8% or better, performance start rewarding it with more traffic hmm. but only wow. until and unless that eight percent survives right because if it drops back down then we want to go back it also means now you can design to protect the downside so what if that emoji backfires and reduces the amount of successful appointments you might only have a tolerance for a two percent degradation so you could design it to say if this ever falls below two percent kind of kind of revert back now, could anyone do that? Sure, you know, with enough data scientists and time. But if you've productized the ability to think in this way, now the Annies of the world feel very empowered to say, not only am I going to try and play offense when I'm when we're designing a conversation to help a, a user, but we're going to try and be thoughtful about which user we're communicating with, and and start to reveal the best way to communicate with them. So that means that every piece of your stack needs to be composable. So for example, you might want to experiment with the gender of the voice uh, of your of your digital worker. Um, based on the topic, it might be better to slow down, introduce more pause, and change the tone of the engagement. Other times you want to kind of get through it and let's do this fast and be, you know get over with it. And so inter these are all paints on a palette, right? And, mm -hmm. and as, as these artists start to become more capable of painting, um, hopefully you can see how, how that kind of solves this issue of moving from a skills-based NLU-focused you know, moment in a customer journey to a true transformation where you're a lot more empathetic to your users across their entire life cycle. Mm, mm. That's very interesting. So productizing it then, when you productize that, it, um, it sounds as though it's obviously a lot easier to use within the platform. And so how do you, how do you encourage the Annie's of the world to, to use this stuff? Because I think part of the problem is that people are just not thinking big enough really right. maybe that's because maybe some of the tools shape your thinking and you you know what is it we shape our tools and our tools shape us so if the tooling's not available or not easy it'll shape the way that you imagine using it but at the same time you kind of need to you need to be you need to have your customer experience head on everything you're describing is basically service design in a nutshell really you know 
which is why it's more akin to digital transformation than it is to what what you would call conversational AI, because you're all it's designing a customer journey, it's it's really planning how to handle each of the details, it's being forward thinking and proactive about how to handle these edge case scenarios, and then also how to test and make it automatically automate in an automated fashion, make it more efficient over time. So. How much of what you do with OneReach is all about making tools that are clear about opening the, that possibility space yeah. versus how much do you actually need to work with clients and say, look, you're not thinking big enough here. Let's, let's, here's some examples. So I, I mentioned I, I've, I've been with OneReach for almost a decade now. The, the most painful part of that journey, um, you just, <laughs> you just touched on. I'm having, <laughs> I'm having like a reaction because we, we, we had hoped that, um, you know, by building, all of these capabilities and making them democratized so that anyone can use them, that you know, they would they would be well adapted and people would be out in the world building these incredible experiences. And we looked we looked around and we said, man, you know, people are using our platform in ways that are you know very, very based, very uninspired, you know, very mm. in some ways disappointing to be to be honest. Um, and so we, we tried to study like what what do we do about that? You know, it's we we think we've kind of crack the nut on making it possible and easy, but people still aren't, aren't using it. And so to, to give you a metaphor, um, just to kind of drive that home, imagine everyone in the world sees in black and white, and there's a whole artist community that has figured out charcoal and like photorealistic, you know, drawings, and they're just beautiful. And then one day color is invented. Those same artists get really excited because like this green is so magnificent and this red is so rich and uh but the first thing that happens is they start to mix the colors together. And, and then what are you left with? You're, you're, you're black again. <laughs> um, and, and so that's been our, our biggest challenge um, is, is people getting access to the platform and building the thing that they could have built on any NLU system, you know, some basic chatbot that's not going to be very helpful. And frankly, will be abandoned. You know, Gartner said 90% of, you know, chatbots will be deployed. Um, they'll be abandoned by the end of 2023. So we said, okay, we, we have to play a bigger role here. So one of the biggest changes we've made is um, uh, acknowledging that the that, that decades really of experience that we have is really valuable to our customers. So we have an apprenticeship program now so that um, they can uh, um, learn from people who have done this successfully at the expert level. Um, and for us, an expert is someone who's deployed into production ten times or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and there aren't there aren't that many people in the world who who can claim that. Um, and and that way, we're not just focusing on how to do things, but helping answer the question: What should we do? Um, the the feedback we get most commonly is is Wow, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> and so, if you don't know what's possible, then of course you're not going to you know go out and and build it. And so really what we're focused on is, is choosing, um, you know, the right organizations to work with. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of comb through our wait list and say, you know, who's a good cultural fit, who's thinking about this in a, in a productive way, um, who's maybe made a five-year mistake already um, and, and is ready to kind of take their own experience and, and use that as a jumping off point to do things, to do things better. And then we partner very closely with them. Um, to say, you know, let's find a balance between getting something into production quickly and starting to deliver value, which we're really proud of, but recognizing that there's a roadmap here um, that's going to to lead to customer experiences that the world hasn't seen yet. Um, mm. And and so we think we'll look back. You know, these these little chat bubbles that everyone shows. We, we we think we'll look back, you know, in, in, in probably a few years and giggle and say, oh, do you remember that phase? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that that, that we, we expect it'll kind of come and go, to be honest. Um, and, and people will realize that conversational interfaces are a new medium, not just, you know, not just chat bubbles anymore. Um, mm. But we'll see. Maybe... Maybe we're wrong. Um, it's going to be fun to find out uh, how all this un- kind of unfolds over the years. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's been said for quite a while that we're in the HTML phase of this whole industry. If you think about conversational AI being an interface to all technology, then you think about it being a uh, channel, multiple channel, every channel that a business has. 
essentially. So it's over time, people are going to be using conversational interfaces on products, on software, on hardware, you know, uh, and then also as your primary contact channel and point, regardless of channel, when you communicate with any business. And so it's definitely, you know, we're definitely in the HTML phase. And I think that part of the stuff that you've been outlining is the stuff that brings, you know, to, to carry on the web analogy. It's the JavaScript and the the stuff that makes stuff happen rather than it being the HTML table-based inline CSS terrible designs, which is I think where we are at the moment. It's all about bringing CSS and that JavaScript together to make more rich experiences with the added benefit of having all of the backend, you know, stuff in place as well. Um, <clears throat> but you, you mentioned an interesting thing there, which was going through your wait list and selecting customers who are the right kind of fit, which is a very interesting position to be in, uh, in terms of your go-to-market, because a lot of other vendors are trying to kind of lift up the curtain so to speak you know you can register you can get a free trial you can play with the platforms it's consumption based so you can put something into production without paying a penny uh, and then pay for what you use whereas if someone was to go to the one reach website today you can't access the tool you would have to speak to somebody at one reach and it sounds as though you're fairly selective about who ends up using the platform presumably because you want to make sure that every deployment does well by the technology and, and the technology doesn't get caught up in the uh in the cat getting the wrap for a bad deployment basically which i think it can often do so i wonder if you can shed a bit of light for those who are listening in who are loving the sound of this and are interested in working with one reach what is your go-to-market like how do, how would people work with you if they wanted to yeah yeah happy to, to describe it um the 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 philosophy we, we, we have is that we, we just don't want to be part of failed initiatives. And, and if the data, you know, the third party data is that 90% of these things fail, then that's not us being a good partner to our customer, right? Um, yeah, you know, you make some revenue off of it, but at the end of the day, that's just a really kind of short term mindset. Um, and, and we're, really motivated to to actually help transform you know big big companies and, and big ideas and so our go-to-market is is you know for those who who know the space and have tried and failed before tend to be our best customers we we, we inherit a lot of business from folks who have said i've been struggling on xyz platforms over the last three years and it's just not it's not working. They that experience means that they are uniquely qualified to appreciate what we've what we've built. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't work with organizations who are trying this for the first time, um, but I think that's indicative of of where we think success can be found. And so when people do reach out or, or join the waitlist, we contact every one of them, um, and we have an initial call to say, you know. What, what are you trying to do to do here? Where are you in your journey? How, how could we be most helpful, you know, to you? And that's really a mutual, you know, qualification process. You know, they want to hear from us about what we think our strengths are and how we think we might be a good partner. And we want to hear from them, you know, are the problems you're trying to solve ones that we think we can, we can be helpful towards or not. Um, and, and for those that where it's a good fit, we really spend a lot of time. Um, it's a really well curated journey that they go through. Um, it, it, it's inclusive of free sandboxes and POCs. You know, we're, we we really advocate for that. Um, so it's not like it's some big, you know, multi million dollar sale and you got to place a big bet. It's not that at all. It's just we don't want people in the sandbox, you know, throwing sand all over the place. <laughs> we want people that are in there, uh, you know, to to learn and. Um, that kind of brings me to, to another interesting kind of go-to-market function, which is this idea of a bake-off. Um, you know, there's a lot of RFPs, and when the Magic Quadrant came out, you know, now everyone kind of had a, you know, there was some framing around what is the what is this landscape, who's in it, and, and mm. where does everyone stack up? And I think more helpfully was the critical capabilities report that takes everyone in the MQ and stack ranks them head-to-head -head against each other. Mm -hmm. in four excuse me in five categories um so that to me is i think the most helpful research out there um but that has led people to try and write rfps for things that they maybe don't know a lot about and and so 
that's a that's a hard thing to do. You know, it's a hard thing to write one, and it's probably hard for them to read the responses. And so, what we really advocate for is a bake off. You know, come up with functional requirements. Don't spend your time listening to a salesperson show you slides and recordings. Make them build something. Give give everyone five days and say, "Here's what I'm looking for." I'm you know, tell them on a Monday morning. Presentations are on Friday afternoon. And that just removes any ambiguity of what who's capable of what. Um, mm. it, it takes all of the overselling, which is a big problem in our industry, and kind of you know pushes that to the side and and brings a lot of clarity into who's who and 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 I think organizations can then form a pretty you know they can have a well informed opinion because they they don't have to trust the sellers anymore. Now they can just mm. look at the outcomes and and make a choice. Mm, interesting. I've actually heard of um, firsthand a number of um, a number of deals that have been kind of done off the back of not not a bake off, but off the back of compelling ability to be able to create something quickly and create something that fits the use case right and to understand the business that you're kind of trying to get into and stuff like that. Uh, I won't name the companies specifically, but I've I've, I've seen that happen a number of times. Um, so that's a good idea and it gives you the chance to flex you know what your strengths are and it gives the client to ultimately figure out or, or learn what the end result can be like because that's the thing about conversational interfaces is that it's a little bit like i i liken it a bit to music which is you know no coincidence because it's the audio channel kind of thing but i could explain we were talking about music and amps and that before this weren't we? <laughs> uh, i can explain to you what a song sounds like you know but you're never going to really appreciate what that song sounds like because you can't hear it. And so the best thing to do is just to play the song and then you can understand it yourself and you can make your own opinions about it. I think the same is very much true for conversational interfaces, which is you can talk about it all you want, but the proof is always in the pudding. You're better off just showing the thing and letting someone play with it and, and letting them see what the result is, you know? And, and I think the nuance there is if, if you were, you know, if you were interviewing a, a a musician um, to play at an event. Um, listening, listening to songs they built for others is okay, but the real challenge would be: Can you write a song for my mom's fiftieth anniversary and hear some background about them? You know, mm. can you make them cry for me? <laughs> um, and and that's that's the real challenge of a songwriter, right? Um, and so, give them five days, and then. Mm. And then see what they play for you. That's it. Just it feels so obvious that you know I'm. I'll I'll admit to being confused why that's not just what happens in every single vendor evaluation process. <laughs> it's mad. It's mad. Um, cool. Well, final final question. I wrote this down earlier. Actually, I would definitely want to ask this one, which is earlier on you mentioned something that is a key to opening up a lot more of these hyper-personalized experiences, which is around being able to gather context on and information on people that is unstructured and that most of the time will go go missing. And a good example, which we've covered a number of times actually is and when more in the case of training NLU systems, which is if someone says something like, uh, I was on holiday and I lost my credit card. The the bit that most care about is just I've lost my credit card, but the bit or, or I'm going on holiday and I've lost my credit card. So if you're a bank and someone says I'm going on holiday and I've lost my credit card, obviously the need there is that they want a credit card replacement. But again, you've just learned that they're going on holiday. So do they want travel insurance? And do they know that their card charges them for withdrawing money abroad? They might be better off using their credit card when they travel. Those kind of things uh, make a, a simple transaction into that added value which enables a business to offer a more delightful experience. Uh, and also it's better for the business because they might get business off the back of that travel insurance or whatever. And the example you give was the the woman who says that, or the man who says that I've got to take my kid to soccer practice and can we change the appointment and that kind of stuff. And, and I think most customers or most people would agree that that level of service is what you'd expect from a human. If, you, if I call my bank and, and you're the person answering the phone and I tell you I'm going on holiday and you sell travel insurance, it'd be prudent to just say, by the way, are you, are you covered with travel insurance? But all of a sudden you put technology in there and then you're in the realms of, oh, it's listening to me and it's kind of like, you know, profiling me and all this kind of stuff. So 
privacy is a very real thing, isn't it? There's a lot of companies who haven't won't go near AWS for this language technology because they don't want all of their data going in through Amazon servers, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. And so privacy is still very much a kind of thing that you need to be able to get through if you want to deploy in the enterprise. So how do you approach that privacy conversation when you can basically, you know, listen to anything anyone says and then offer things that are, are contextual to that, but not strictly relevant to the th- the reason they came in the first place. Like, how do you approach the whole privacy and security kind of conversation? Yeah, it's it's more of a question of how our customers want to approach that. I, you know, as a as a platform, um, we we think we treat privacy and security as a feature, um, meaning we one of the unique aspects of our offering is that we deploy into what we call private dedicated environments, which means that every enterprise customer gets their own instance of one reach. And that allows us to have infrastructure level, level control on things like what information is being logged, when, for how long, who has access to it, um, what are what are the retention policies, um, how do we handle for regulatory issues regarding um, the, the requirement to store data for a certain amount of time and also the requirements to purge data when requested. Um, and as you look at our portfolio of, of customers, we have those in financial services who have a different you know, collection of requirements than maybe our healthcare customers, uh, which might be different than retailers. And so rather than having an, a one-reach organizational opinion on you know, here's how data is going to be managed, we believe the right thing to do is to partner with the customer and say, what obligations do we together have uh, regarding privacy and, and security? And that allows us to accommodate what their, what their preferences are. Um, and, 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 and then as those decisions are made, we can bake into the conversational design different levels of announcements, <laughs> you know, <laughs> thanks for calling. We're going to record this and use the information to better serve you in the future. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. You know, some companies might want that. Others might say it a little bit differently. Um, so like most things, there's no one size fits all answer, but we're really proud of our ability to accommodate, um, you know, the reality of privacy and security on a case by case basis. Mm. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm definitely uh, impressed and I'm glad that, um, you know, you mentioned opening the aperture earlier on. I think that's kind of hopefully what people have got from this conversation, which is that the conversational element in these solutions is not as big a deal as you may think. And that actually in order to make those conversations useful, you need to be able to fulfill. And fulfillment comes in a variety of different forms. It comes based on what you can do currently, based on your current infrastructure, the current APIs you have available. But it also comes in having the tools and the capabilities to be able to do things that you couldn't imagine doing previously, which we've covered a lot of as well. So I think that the approach is fantastic. I think the the um, the way you're explaining the platform is, is, is fantastic. I think the go-to-market is great as well, keeping the quality control on what gets deployed. Um, and it's a really, really interesting interesting concept i hope i hope what people take away from this is that which is that focus on designing good conversations yes but also focus on being able to deliver things for customers uh, beyond you know simple request response kind of interactions uh, so thank you kevin for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure I appreciate that, Kane. This was a lot of fun. I, I get excited about this stuff. Um, but for, for for those who might you know want a more practical uh, conversation, um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll mention our, our founder Rob Wilson has a book coming out. Um, it's called The Age of Invisible Machines. Um, it's being published by Wiley um, uh, this month, actually, and it's really a, just a practical guide to creating a hyper automated ecosystem of intelligent digital workers. So there's a lot of lot. Um, you know, a lot to, to kind of sink your teeth into and, and bring some of these ideas to life. Um, and so if, if listeners out there are interested, feel free to contact us at OneReach and we can help get you connected. I will do that. I'll put the link in there. It's actually available on pre-order on Wiley.com. So uh, I'll put that link in there. Uh, you can actually buy it now and, well, pay for it now and it will be shipped as soon as it uh, as soon as soon it comes out, which is good. And what's good about that book as well is we've spoke about hyper-personalization. Uh, there's a lot of language in there which you've referred to there, which is around hyper-automation. And I think that a lot of people, when they talk about hyper-automation, they're just talking about lots of automation. <laughs> 
Whereas, <laughs> whereas this, <laughs> this isn't lots of, it is lots of automation, but it's also those nuances that we spoke about, which allow you to take something from simple transaction through to next level personalized conversational experience as it would be expected to have with a human. Um, and I, so I would definitely recommend that. And I would definitely recommend that you check out onereach.ai uh, to learn more and join the ever-growing waitlist. Uh, yeah. So looking forward to it. Nice one. And if you haven't uh, got your ticket for the Voice Summit, VUX at Voice22, then definitely do that. VoiceSummit.ai, promo code VUX20 to save 20% on your tickets. So until further ado, uh, or without further ado, or until next time, rather, is what I should say. Uh, next podcast is, uh, let me just check the diary. We've got them coming thick and fast at this moment in time. Next podcast is with uh, Huex. And then we have, after that, we have, uh, who do we have after that? Uh, Verizon, actually, next week, which is going to be good. Head of Conversational AI, Bala Madali, who is, uh, yeah, Head of Conversational AI at Verizon. So do check out that. Join VUX.world forward slash subscribe to get all these notifications to all of these uh, live podcasts, uh, webinars, and the webinar coming up, actually, with Vonage and uh, OneReach, which you will get notified about if you do go to VUX.world forward slash subscribe. So until next time, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Kevin. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ben.